1: Six foot six, above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low no power, frequency, radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight.
0: Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. Happy Tuesday, y'all. During the 2021-2022 school year, more than 1,600 titles were banned in schools and libraries across the country. According to a report by the group Pan America, the wave of bans represents a coordinated campaign to remove books with LGBTQ characters and storylines. They also target books involving characters of color. My guest today is the author of two young adult memoirs as a Black non-binary Writer, their first book has been banned in nearly 30 school districts. My guest, George M. Johnson, author of All Boys Aren't Blue and We Are Not Broken. Welcome to the show, George. How are you today?
1: I'm pretty well. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, thank you so much for joining us. I know you had like a, a an intense travel day. And honestly, you've been you've been kind of around the country. People are talking about this book um, because people love this book and because people hate this book. What does it feel like to have your work be both deeply appreciated um, and despised?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's been an interesting journey, um, especially because the book had been out for like almost 18 months before the first attempt at a ban even occurred back in 2021. Um, And the book, you know, won several awards, like teen readers chose it as their number one book back in 2021. And so you have like that whole side of people who have been helped and healed by the work. And then you have the other side, which is, you know, they haven't even read the book. So it's like, I can't even hold too much weight on it. Cause it's not like they actually read the book. They just have an ideology of what things should and shouldn't be taught. Um, and so realistically, it's like, I'm not fighting, I'm just fighting a radical ideology uh, that just wants to eliminate black and queer storytelling, black storytelling, uh, while also preserving the alternative history that has always been taught in America.
0: Mm. I I thought about your your book a lot over the last few weeks in part because I got to interview you in Green Bay in person during a conference a couple weeks ago um, but also because you you write in a way that stays with people. Um, you you write about your childhood with an incredible amount of compassion for yourself um, and everyone around you at, at that time. Um, and and you write about experiences that I think many of us, uh, try not to think about, it. try not to, to remember. Um, what, what has it been like for you as you've talked about this book, as you've reflected on your own life and your own identity to reconcile some of the moments in your life that were really painful and challenging um, and, and to do that regularly and publicly?
1: Yeah, it's interesting, um, specifically because you know several of the people in my book are deceased and uh it didn't really like hit me until um i was doing a uh doing an event at Keene university uh, last year my mom was there my dad came my aunts came my cousins came because i'm from new jersey and they asked me a question about my older brother who had passed away last year um over the summer and that was like the first time because when i first started to speak i was speaking about him in the present, and I had to stop myself and have to let the crowd know, you know, because they were asking a question about, like, how my relationship was with him, and I had to let the crowd know that he had passed away, and so it's, like, that reminder that, like, you know, this book doesn't, the book still changes, like, as my life goes on, and as I continue to talk about the book, the people in this book aren't just characters that I made up; they're real-life people, and so the book continuously changes as my relationship with these people change, as the these people's relationship with the physical world changes. Um and so that was like one of those um moments for me. So it's it's still I, I tell people like it's for the
0: if you are joining us just now just jumping into your car just sitting down for lunch you're listening to wort 89.9 fm i'm your host ali Maldro. this is a public affair and today we are interviewing george m johnson author of all boys aren't blue the second most banned book in the united states of america it is banned in 29 school districts um and we were just talking about you know what it's been like for you to, to relive trauma or to talk about your trauma as you discuss this book. And I think we could we could hear from you right up until about your last sentence.
1: Okay, um, so sorry about that. Um, yes, I struggle on this app for some reason. My computer does not get along with it. Um, so yeah, I think the book is like, it. the book is constantly gro- like changing because the relationships I have with people are changing and people's relationships with the physical world are changing and so for me, um, You know, it's pretty easy for me to talk about the book most times, but then when I have to start to reflect on the people who I've lost and that I'm losing still, uh, it can be a little bit tough uh, to to do. But um, I think overall it's just been a cathartic process.
0: Generally within this book, I think you do something that's really challenging, which is you talk about your family in ways that are very honest and very frank, um, but also with a deep level of, of admiration. At one point in the book, you say, my mother respected my agency by allowing me to choose what would work best for me. Um, when, when you think about how you were raised and how you know your, your parents in, embraced who you are, uh, what what advice do you have for for parents who have a, a child who is gender nonconforming, who have a child who uh, may fit somewhere into the acronym LGBTQIA plus?
1: Yeah, my advice is always going to be to just lean in, like lean into what your child is naturally gravitating towards, um, and and to protect the the greatness that you know your child is innately expressing. Um, I think so, you know, of course, like we know the world is not going to be kind to queer people because it's never been kind to queer people, but they shouldn't, that shouldn't also be happening inside their home, you know? Absolutely. And so I think it's really, you know, it, and it's funny too, cause it's like, it's just, it's kind of simple. You just kind of got to lean in and you just kind of got to block out the noise of what society is telling you your child should be like. Um, And accept the fact that this is the child you have. And with that, you're they're going to be growing through identity. You're going to be doing the exact same thing with them Um, because it's a journey together. Right. And so it's like my parents, even to this day, are still on this journey with me, but we're taking it together because I'm figuring it out. So they figure it out as I figure it out. Um, And I think from being young they just gave me the space to be figuring it out while they watched and supported and now you know they're they're more well versed in it uh because we we now know what it looks like and and how to uh properly care for it
0: how did your parents know to respect your autonomy how did your parents you know i think we think of <clears throat> folks who, you know, grew up a generation before us, particularly in the Black community, as being less accepting of LGBTQ folks, but particularly of the trans community, the non-binary community, the gender non-conforming community. Um, I, I think that that stereotype has been inaccurate for a long time. But I am I am curious as this book confronts both what it means to you to be black and what it means to you to be an openly queer person. Um, you know, how how did your parents what what rooted them in their ability to accept you for who you are?
1: yeah i mean it's it's interesting like i said i grew up with a transgender cousin and that just happened to be my mom's godchild hope and so i think that because they had already seen it before uh specifically my mom and my grandmother like they had already experienced it within our family before like what queerness looked like and so i think it was easy for them to kind of spot it in me that i was just a lot more effeminate and a lot more um you know sassy and just different, like I just I just liked different things than like my my cousins and my brothers and you know they could tell that from very very early on. I was a little bit more, I don't want to say soft spoken, but like I was much more of a loner to myself. I liked I did used to like to like really like just read and I would write and I would just do like odd things and I like to wear cowboy boots and I like to dress differently. Like I just had a different spirit about me that just didn't match, you know the other kids in the family so I think it was just kind of easy for them to recognize it but then also give me the space to be myself like to be an individual um because they were allowing everybody else to be individuals and I think that's really what it boiled down to for my mom and my grandmother is like why shun they call me Matthews like why stop Matt from doing what Matt wants to do when we don't stop the rest of them from doing what they want to do and um, I think it was like not just about me having agency it was just about the fact that, you know, my grandmother just always liked to operate from fairness and my mom just, it, you know, it's like it's not about what's right or wrong. It's about what's fair. And if we're going to allow them to do these things and this is what Matt wants to do, then we have to be fair and allowing Matt to, to have the space to just be Matt.
0: I love that you brought up the fact that you like had this different sense of, of fashion Um, because the, the cowboy boots story is one of my favorite parts of this book. It's, you know, this book fluctuates like childhood between like things that are incredibly serious and incredibly painful um, and into realms that are, you know, so important to you as a kid, but are also like silly and playful, and um, the meaning that we kind of project onto. Things that allow for us to be ourselves as a kid um, comes through so clearly in, in the story you tell about your grandmother taking you and all of the cousins to to Disneyland um, and, you know, taking you all out in the same outfit and everybody got the same cool tennis shoes except for you. You wanted uh, these cowboy boots and, yes. and that- that story made it so easy to fall so deeply in love with with your family and the ways in which your family let you be who you are and and stuck up for you um, as, as a person who had the right to, to be who you are. Do you still love cowboy boots? Like what is your relationship, <laughs> with fashion and gender expression at this point in your life? What does that evolution um, meant for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do still love cowboy boots. I mean, I wear I wear all kind of boots and sneakers and stuff now. Um, when I'm going out to events and doing doing things. So I wear heels, I wear I wear whatever I want, you know, like whatever makes me feel comfortable. Um and I think that's pretty much I mean, that's really what it's all about for me now. It's like what makes me feel comfortable, what do I like? Um you know, because society's gonna have one idea of what I can and can't wear. And then I have my own ideas of what I wanna wear. And so, you know, I think even being a, a kid who wore those cowboy boots, knowing I would probably get joked or clowned about it, I think it helped me build up the confidence I need to now walk out as who I fully am and not really give a crap about what people think or feel when I'm wearing makeup and when I'm wearing non binary or gender non conforming um, outfits. Uh, or dresses, or you know, outfits with trains on them, and I, I just, I, I just fully get to be myself. But I think it all started with pushing through as that that young little boy that just wanted to be uh, himself um whether that was the cowboy boots whether it was double touching like i i just wanted to be myself and do the things that made me happy and so now as an adult i think i was i've been able to get to that place because of where it all started and i'll start from there and it's just my fashion sense i guess it's just an evolution of this little boy who always wanted to to
0: be this or have this Mm. Thank you so much for speaking to that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. And today we are talking to George M. Johnson, the author of the second most banned book in the United States of America, All Boys Aren't Blue. Um, You talked a little bit about You know what it what it means to embrace your joy and your happiness even when that means risking your safety uh in terms of you know what what it means to walk out into the world as a a person who identifies as black and non-binary and as a person who is is often interpreted as a black man in the united states of america um what what does it feel like to you for you to choose your your happiness over your safety and what would it look like to live in a world where you didn't have to choose between happiness and safety
1: yeah I mean for me you know it is the conscious decision and the choice that I make to know that like just my physical being and me being myself is causes such fear in others that it puts my safety at risk but I still choose to to do that because to be black in America is to always be unsafe, in my opinion. So it's like, why should I conform myself thinking that it's going to create some um, extra layer of safety when, you know, you, you can't you know, you can't even be a black boy and ring the wrong doorbell anymore. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you you can't be a black boy and play with toy guns in the park and you can't be a black boy you you just can't right like it's almost like you just can't even be a black boy like you know um and so then for me you know it it becomes like well if i'm already going to be demonized and attacked for just my existence and i might as well live it the way i want to live it um and i think that's what the choice has become for me and i think what you would see, though, if, you know, if you didn't have to choose one over the other, uh, like have to choose your happiness over safety, you'd see a lot more visibly queer people. Um, I still think that there is a huge amount of people who are queer but will never identify as that or never identify as such, even if they are within community, even if they are extremely discreet about it. I think part of that discretion is built in the fact that they have a fear over their safety um, and a fear over repercussions and how they would be treated. And so I think if you were removed that, you would you would realize that this country has a lot more queer people in it than identify on a census. Um, And I think we're already seeing it with Gen Z, like people, people's natural assumption is that oh, because y'all, people like myself and others are more queer, it's turning our kids queer. And we're like, that's not what's happening. What's actually happening is your kids are already queer. They are now just starting to feel safer to identify as such. And as they see us be more visible, it in turn, you will start to see more of them feel safer. And so that number is going to keep going up as rapidly as it is. I think Gen Z's at almost like 20% identifying as LGBTQ. It's like, yeah, but... We could tell you that back in the day, if you look at the Harlem Renaissance, black folks were probably 20% LGBTQ back then. Like, you know, it, it just wasn't safe to identify as such. So it made it look like um, a number that was different. But realistically, I think if if people could just be happy and not have to worry about their safety, you would see that number continue to grow. And I think that's why you're seeing it continue to grow is because, um, the kids have to worry about being killed in school. So their identity is probably now not even like the biggest concerns of theirs. Right. It's like when my safety, my actual safety is being challenged through gun violence, I might as well be my damn self. And that's what you're witnessing. So now more of them are choosing to be themselves because they're like, Oh, this used to be the threat. My identity used to be the threat. But now it doesn't even matter what my identity is. Like if they want to come up in here because y'all don't want to do anything to protect us, then what are we supposed to do? So I might as well be myself, and I think that's what we're witnessing: is you know, that that rise in the number um, because they are choosing their happiness because because their safety is already out the window. They mm. don't feel safe. So if you don't feel safe, you might as well, at the bare minimum, be yourself while not feeling safe.
0: <laughs> oh, I think that that is both like a, a profoundly insightful thing to say, and also a, a devastating thing to acknowledge in terms yeah. of. What it feels like to be a young person right now, and what it's felt like to be a young queer person throughout history, and still the attacks against LGBTQ youth are intensifying, um, are are becoming, you know, part part of normal legislative conversations across the country. Um, as as your book is is being banned, and as you talk about Gen Z, it's it's important to acknowledge that you wrote this book for young people. Why did you think that that young people needed a book like this? Needed a, a book about you know you reflecting on on your identity as a young person, um, and 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 what that has meant to you throughout your life.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it was important to like you know really come to terms with the fact that like I had to navigate uncharted waters until I was like damn near twenty something because I just didn't have any resources available, and so it was like, well, what does it look like to put a resource out there? Like, what does that do? How does that change your life, right? Because I always think about like little moments that change the trajectory of my life. Um, That to some people, you know, it was a little thing that was done, but to me it ended up becoming the catalyst for so much more. And so I always think about when um, my friend Darnell Moore uh, he used to be my editor, but like when he first got me my freelance job at the Griot, this was many years ago. And I was just a baby journalist just trying to figure out how to get in. And then that job led to a bunch of other jobs. Right. But it was just that one person making one connecting email that changed the trajectory of my writing career. And had that not happened, I don't know if if all boys on blue ever comes out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think about the book from that way, that if a teen picks this up, it could literally change the trajectory of how they start to navigate that from that day forward after reading it. And I think that's important that we put materials and resources and, and opportunities and visibility and representation in the hands of people who are looking for something to acknowledge their existence. Uh, because once you feel like your existence is acknowledged, you can you navigate the world differently. You see the world through a different lens. You realize that the lens that you, know, you were born with if you were queer isn't invalid, that it is valid, and that many other people before you have also been born to look at this world with that same lens. Um, And so I think that's how I view it and how I view um, why it was necessary to put the book in the hands of teens. And I think watching how the teens are rallying, which I always feel bad about that because I was like, I always feel like teens should just be able to go to school. They shouldn't have to take on the fights of the country. But to watch how they are mobilizing every single day at this point, um, it, it lets us know that the work that we are doing, the books we are writing are giving them, it's activating them, right? And I think that's a part of the direct correlation of like book bands. Why are, why are they so afraid of these books in particular and book bands? Because it activates them. Look at how activated they've become,
0: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And
1: I think that's really part of that fear is they now have resources to show and them how to do it. Um, and now they're, you know, knowing that they're becoming the largest voting block in the country, they know that they can mobilize to change everything. And that's why they're trying to block the education to them. Um, but it's having an adverse effect, in my opinion, because they are unwilling to uh, accept it. And so, um,
0: yeah. Do you think that people who try to ban books realize and understand that by banning your book they've made it more popular um they've made it more interesting they've made more people uh in intrigued by what is so offensive um that it can't it can't be read at school yeah
1: it's it's i I mean i've tried to wrap my mind around it several in many different ways to just see like well because it's like and I mean, like, even today, I saw two books got removed from a library in like Cumberland County. I think my book was one of the 84 on the list to be reviewed or whatever. But it was funny, though, because the librarian was like, OK, but this one book that's on here, I think it was uh, it's pushed by Sapphire. And mm-hmm. she was like, OK, the book's been in the library since 96. And I think she said the book was checked out seven times in like 25 years. Like, so, you know, she's just like, but now... The teens know about the book when they probably didn't know about this book so it's it is it's it's mind boggling because it's like a lot of these teens didn't know all boys on blue was available for them and now they do and so now i get messages every day about it from teens because they're now doing their own book clubs about it and it's helping them bridge the gap with their queer friends and you know, it's helping parents understand their queer children, but they didn't even know this book existed for them to help them with that. So um, I'm not sure what their end goal is. I I guess, what is this saying? Like um, losing the battle, but winning the war. It's like, they may be winning the battle, like by getting it taken out of a classroom, but like, are they really winning the culture war? Like, are they winning this war though? Right. And I think even watching what happened today, like DeSantis trying to fight Disney and you finally have Republicans like, like you lost, like it's like, oh, you're gonna put a prison next to Disney World? Like think, like what are you thinking about? Like you lost, Disney outsmarted you thinking you was doing something and you lost. And it's like, but I'm gonna win this battle. And it's like, yeah, but ultimately we're losing the war. Like so Disney supported LGBT people. And now all of a sudden, you know, any company that supports an LGBT person is like, i enemy be number one. And it's like, do they not realize, it, it, again, it's like a huge part of your voting block are LGBT people, even Republicans. Like, it's just a very weird thing for me to process. Like, I honestly do not know what their intentions are with trying to ban these books. Because it's like the books are still available. So, of course, yes, it hurts the most marginalized who can't afford a book or who can't get to, to the materials. But we also put things in place to give free books in, like, free libraries and, like, putting them in the airports. I don't know. It's it's just a very weird,
0: I mean, I, I guess you I just have to have look day. at it. You said something really beautiful about like, if you can't get this book, I will help you steal it. Um, I will help oh, you. Yeah. Like,
1: it's like, I'm just going to like send you, like, I'm going to buy it and send you a free copy. Like it's, Right. Or if there's a piracy, like I saw the piracy site and I think I shared the link and people were like, you shared the link to piracy on your own book? Yes. They got to be able to read. Like, I don't care. Like, listen, people still going to buy this book. Colleges still go buy this book. Like, I'll be fine. But if there's a teen reader who cannot access it, I'm going to help you steal it. Like, because you should have access to this book and nobody should be able to deny you the right to a resource that you really, really feel that you need. Um, but I don't know, the book banning, the, the 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 just the ways in which it's just like Roe v. Wade is a very unpopular, like it's like nobody really wants full abortion restriction, right? Like literally state after state, red states, they're like, whoa, this is way too restrictive. And the politicians are still like, oh, well, we're still going to ban it. And it's just like, at what end, though, like y'all are just going to keep losing. We're going to ban the books, too. Okay, so now... I don't know. I can't explain it. It's it's maybe it's the end of the. I think it's the end of the binary party system. I think most of the country now identifies as independents. Mm. Um, I saw that the other day. I think 25% of the country, or 23% identifies Republicans. I think 25% identifies Democrat, and then it's like 48 or 49 or 50% identify as independents now. Um, but I think it's it's yeah, but it's easy to. To see which which side you want to vote against. I think right now people are just voting against people because it's just like I can't really vote for a lot because y'all mostly y'all don't really have no policy agenda, but I can vote against what I know ain't gonna work. And so I think that's where the country is at. <laughs>
0: hmm. I I think when you get to the point of like banning books, it it it's a turning point in our our relationship to you know to intellectual freedom to the ability to pursue knowledge and information um as as an autonomous person i i greatly appreciate the the way you kind of talk about the the politics of this current moment and also you know i i've thought a lot about what the politics of your your book are because your book is not inherently political you're talking about your childhood um and as you know and as a black queer person your your childhood becomes politicized um but ultimately you talk about things like your family you talk about things like double dutch you talk about your your gender expression your curiosity your friendships um this this is a book that is you know Loving and beautifully written. And that's one of the things I think people miss when you talk about what makes the book controversial is I recently saw you compared to other authors who have been banned and you were compared, you know, to James Baldwin and Richard Wright, which I thought was, you know, a very like very real comparison um, it was a real comparison to, to say you're similar to James Baldwin and and Richard Wright um, because those folks are are known for for the artistry in which they they craft a sentence the artistry in which they tell a story um, and you tell this story so beautifully but Richard Wright and James Baldwin were banned for talking for the way they talked about white people um, and your book does, have some real clear stances on on white America, on on the way we talk about history. It's interesting to think about the things that maybe folks find more controversial about the book, which is I think really the way you talk about yourself, your own gender, your own sexuality. Yeah. Um, how have people responded to the way you talk about <laughs> racism in America? The way you talk about you know uh, Thomas Jefferson? The way the way you talk about white folks?
1: yeah it's been interesting one because like that's again that's how I know that they're not reading the book because I was like they would have I know for a fact this book would have been pulled if they knew that that was even in the book they don't even know that it's in the book so I think that's the part I find funny is because like in none of the bands has anybody brought up the fact of me talking about Thomas Jefferson being a rapist nobody has ever brought that up like not a single person at any of the and I'm like I know for a fact they would have or, you know, Washington owning slaves and Lincoln and all of his misstatements and double talk around slavery. Like they never bring that chapter up. And so I always just laugh because it's like they're not reading this book because you get to that chapter well before you get to any of my sexual experiences. Um, The book made every single anti-racist list during the the height of the George Floyd uh, protests. And I found it funny though, because I felt the same way. I was like, I'm not really writing. Like, I didn't write this with the intention of teaching anti-racism. Like, you know, like I wrote the truth, like about my life. Like it's just me writing the truth about my life, um, which just happened to have many racist moments. And so it was like, you know, and like people were just like, oh my God, I learned so much about how microaggressions and this and that. And I'm like, well, that's just the life. like. That we, you know, that that I lived, and I just put it on paper in a way to help people to understand it. Um, so, it, but it has been interesting to see the book received as critical of uh, of whiteness and white supremacy. I mean, because it is. Like, I guess, and that's you know, sometimes I go back and I'm like, oh, I guess I was, I was doing that that also hard, heavy labor of critiquing the indoctrination of whiteness into black children um, and how we're just kind of taught to, like, have to accept it uh, as as what it is. Um, but it, it just it, yeah, like it, it's funny now to reread some of the book and some of the sections and some of those things. And I'm just like, oh, OK, like, I guess this book also does fit into that framework of the Baldwin's and the Richard Wright's and so many others who were able to weave in, you know, the lived experience because that's really all it is it's like people like how dare you criticize whiteness it's like we're actually just saying our lived experience which in turn has to be a critique of whiteness because um our lived experience as I stated earlier is we can't ring the wrong doorbell anymore without being shot in the head right like a 16-year-old mm-hmm. should be able to make a mistake from Terrace and Lane and ring the wrong doorbell and you not feel threatened by somebody ringing the wrong doorbell, right? Like, so when you get to that point, all we can do is just critique our lived, like critique whiteness through our lived experience. Because this is our lived experience. Every day we watch in, they want to bring back Lynch in, they want to throw black executive, you know, black legislators out of Congress. They want they, it, to, it's like. We, that's all we can do like you know and you know it's always like oh it's not about race everything in this country is about race <laughs> every single thing this whole country was built on racial issues <laughs> like um from the beginning right like everything's about race in this country so mm.
0: yeah I I do not disagree. You were just tuning in. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. My guest today is George M. Johnson, who is an award winning non binary Black writer, author, executive producer. They are the author of the New York Times best selling memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue. The book discusses George's adolescence growing up as a young Black queer boy in New Jersey. All Boys Aren't Blue is banned in 29 school districts, making it the second most banned book in the United States of America. There was some really exciting news about your book recently being turned into a film or a TV show. I think you're working with with Gabrielle Union. Yes. Um, what has it been like to, as one group of people says, we we got to make sure that nobody ever sees this book, to have other people say, we're going to make sure that everybody reads this book, that everybody knows about this story, um, and we will bring it to the big screen, the small screen, um, the libraries, where, wherever we can, um, because the story is important. What is it, What does it feel like to kind of straddle those two, you know, extreme reactions to to your work? And how does it feel to, you know, be working with Gabrielle Union?
1: Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, I think that adds the other layer to it, too, right? It's like, okay, but we watch TV shows that are made for or feature teen characters that, I mean, euphoria, y'all. Like, I mean, them teens was doing everything, right? And it's like... but nobody wants to ban euphoria like i don't get it it's like there's there like you ban books like they can't just go on the internet and watch the same subject matter like watch it, like, right, like pull it up on their phone, like can just watch the same subject matter in a different media format, right? Um, So for me, it's been great to start to enter into television and film and start to do TV and film projects and be able to uh, talk about Blackness and queerness and kind of expand the canon in that way. I think about, you know, the fact that so many authors, you know, have adaptations of their books. And so I think that's, Oh, I mean, and that book, like book to television is like a really strong market again um, for a while. It it wasn't as strong, but now you're starting to see a lot of young adult you know, adaptations in the works. And that's kind of like cool to be a part of like that trend that's growing again, uh, where we're able to adapt the stories in a different medium for other people. Um, Working with Gab has been great, you know, primarily because she also has the lived experience of this, like, raising a transgender daughter, and that's real, right? Like, and I remember, like, when we first started talking, this was years ago, and, like, I just happened to see um, how her and D-Way were raising Zaya, and so I wrote an article for Afropunk, just about Comparing like my parents to to them as parents, and like why it's so necessary for Black families to show this, and I basically says, you know, on a micro level, I was from, from a small city called Plainfield, and my parents were doing the same thing that they're doing, and they had to do it in front of the world. Um, and and from that article, our relationship started. They both read it, and you know, it's been great, you know, ever since then. And you know, to be able to work with somebody on this type of project. Um, It's a blessing because you're not like, how fortunate am I to to be able to work with someone who's been in this industry for so long, but who actually has the lived experience to understand why this book needs to be something greater or something more. Um, So it doesn't get any better than that. And uh, she's just a really amazing person. And uh, yeah, she's just a really, really amazing person.
0: One of the things that I love about your book is your book, in, in a similar vein to the, the film Moonlight, is a story that hasn't been, been told. Um, we, we don't uh, humanize queer people enough to acknowledge that queer people were once queer children. Um, and so I, I thought about this book a lot as an educator, as somebody who is on on the school board in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and I thought about what it looks like to teach this book in in a classroom. and and this book has, you know so, some pretty serious language in it. It has some very, you know, real moments in which you you recon- reconcile your own um, assault as a child. Um, you know, and and I guess I, I want to ask, what do you hope that if a teacher brings this into the classroom, how do you hope that they teach about this book? How do you ho- how do you hope that they share this book with their students?
1: Yeah, you know, for me, I think the best way to teach about <clears throat> this type of book is that it's about inviting the students into a world that they've never seen or that they don't know exists and it's about taking them outside of the bubble of what they thought everyone's lived experience was to realize that other people are going through other things that you have no idea about. Um, I say that because a lot of my classmates from high school have read the book and have reached out. And the first, some of them apologized, um, which I didn't request that, you know, it wasn't like I was looking for an apology, but some of them were just like, they were like, you were always so funny and so witty. They were like, We just had no idea that like y'all were going through this as black students. Like it just seemed like everyone was cool and everything was working itself out and we had our differences, but they weren't that, you know, different. And I was like, no, it was very different and it was very difficult for us um, a lot of times because y'all, 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 y'all get to walk with so much privilege and you don't even have to think about the things we have to think about. We have to think about police stopping us. We have to think about even interacting with white students incorrectly gets us expelled and you're seen as the victim, even if we're the one being victimized. Um, And we had to deal with that as teens. Like that was something we had to process um, back then. So um, yeah, it it has truly just been a journey um, with this book and seeing, uh, like you said, like processing so many different things from the past and putting it out there to the world um, in such a way and having to reconcile, like, because, I, you know, I'm, you know, we're taught to punish people. Like, we're taught justice comes through punishing. And I didn't want to punish any Like, I didn't feel like that wasn't, I didn't have vengeance on my heart. I didn't have, I just wanted people to understand what it what this life was like. And I can only hope that teachers are helping walk students through it. Um, because I think I talk about so many different things that it has a universal appeal. And I hope that the book and that when teachers are teaching it, that they're asking questions or allowing the students to ask questions because I want the students to be able to open up about some of the things that they potentially may be dealing with that I'm talking about in the book. Um, I think that's the ultimate goal for me is I wanted to connect with the readers and to let the students know that they're not the first to go through some of these experiences. And I think for teachers, this becomes the gateway, like that breaks that, that fourth wall, you know, where it's not just about reading a book. It's not just about doing math. It's not just about doing science. And I think that's the the difference when you start to talk about teaching the reading of books is because now it starts to get into the heart work and starts to get into the spirit work and i think a lot of teachers you know they're taught they're trained to teach linear Mm. um devoid of emotion um but we're all human so we walk in the classroom every day full of emotions and i think when you then have a text like this it opens up that space for you to do that work that is outside of linear teaching.
0: Oh, I so completely agree with this. And I think this book, you know, it gives us the opportunity to reflect on the way we were raised, the things that are went on in our lives as young people. But I also thought about when I was reading this book, the kinds of books I loved reading as a young person. And I did not like reading um, until Pankeo Sahara, shout out to Pankeo Sahara is a mm-hmm. summer 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 school educator for me, um, handed me Wally Lamb's She's Come Undone. And when I was reading that book, I started to think like, wow, you can read about all the things people are afraid to talk about. Um, And as a young person, there were so many things I felt like the adults in my life were afraid to be honest with me about, were afraid to talk about, acknowledge, address. Um, And I could find so much safety in the world of of a book that that was willing to challenge the way I was thinking and challenge the experiences I I was having um, and and be bold in ways that people have a hard time being bold in um, when when you're in person, do you remember kind of the the reading that shaped your childhood, your adolescence, um, the the kind of books that stood out to you as a young person?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I talk about this often, just like. The books we had to read were just like they just did not connect to our lived experience in any way. Catcher in the Rye. Um, well, I feel like there was a book called like Sarah Plain and Tall or something. Like, (laughs) um, I feel like that's what it was called, or it's like, um, what was it? Was it Dear God? It's Me, Margaret, and like Little Women and Oh, goodness, uh, The Invisible Man. Like, we, I mean, we had to read The Glass Menagerie, like, it was like. Okay, cool. And then, like you know, you were getting to Chaucer and Shakespeare, and like, but none of it really spoke
0: to. I have you. to say, I loved like when you talked about the book being banned a while ago. You talked about like, oh wait, so you're not okay with this book, but you're okay with Ro- Romeo and Juliet? Juliet, yeah, like they're like teen lovers who kill themselves, kill themselves right.
1: at the end, and it's just like it's like oh, but that's Shakespeare. It's like, well, well, no, because there are teens who. Who still do this? Like, this, like, so what are we talking about? Right? Like, uh, okay, Uh, it's, it's, yeah. And so the books that I had to read, they were really like, they were just about, you know, and I I will say this I think the book that, like, I did resonate with, at least in some way, was like To Kill a Mockingbird. Like, Mm. I think because it kind of, it at least did touch on, racism, right? Like it went into it, right? And you kind of felt like, okay, I actually can understand this. I can relate this to Rodney King in a way. I can relate this to the Central Park Five. I can relate this to, even as a young adult, it was like, I was watching things happen, you know, with the ways in which black folk were being treated in this country, that when you read that book, it was like, oh, I'm not as far removed. We're not as far removed. And we can, at least it has some type of connect connecting piece mind wise as you thought through it um but the rest of those books they were just so far removed from reality like our actual reality it was just like I get it's fiction and everything but it's like even fiction can still have a connecting piece to it um and I just find it interesting now especially because it's like my cousin she got to read like the Hate you give, she read Nick Stone's Dear Martin. Like she, you know, my little cousin Kennedy, they got to read, like, she read Grown by Tiffany Jackson. Like they got to read dope books, like, you know, books that yeah. that, you know, she could see herself on the cover, like hoop earrings and <laughs> that she could read about and that they could all like fully understand and understand how it all played. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I I had to read terrible books. And so <laughs> Maybe that's why I decided to write g- good books because I yeah,
0: want to be Like, it's it's true. You start this book. The last the last part of the opening of this book is uh, your favorite quote from Toni Morrison. If there's a book you want to read but it hasn't been written yet, you must write it. Um, I I think like you you had to write this book, and I think that there are so many people who are so incredibly grateful. That you did, and there is a little part of me that finds it disheartening um, that folks are are banning this book, uh, particularly those who have not read it, because it is such a a powerful story. I want to talk to you a little bit about appropriateness before we mm-hmm. we off the air. Yeah. Um and so you know, you talked a little bit about like comparing the book to something like Euphoria or something like Shakespeare. I uh, talked to a group of young people a few years ago who, you know, we were we were having a sex education conversation. And I asked all of these young people how many of them had been exposed to pornography before they had talked about sex education at school. And all of these young people rose their hands. They all said that by the time they had left elementary school, they had witnessed pornography, they had in some way come into contact with or seen pornography. Um, in, in If you've ever worked in a high school, you know, sex comes up like you don't have to bring it up. Sex comes up. Why do you think folks found found your book in which you depict, you know, consensual um, experiences that are are very thoughtfully written about. You depict sex as safe. Um, you talk about the you know the use of protection as something that was uh, important to you as a young person or provided for you as a young person. Um, what what do you think makes people think that the way you talk about sex and sexuality in this book is inappropriate for young people, especially when we know our young people are being exposed to explicitly sexual content? uh throughout throughout their childhood and adolescence.
1: Yeah, I mean it it just showcases like the true disconnect that uh parents have with teenagers. I mean it just it just really showcases the true disconnect that conservatives or adults have with young adults in this country. Um again, you you can't say in one breath that you believe that a teacher should have a gun in a classroom, but also be banning books for being too dangerous. Like, those two things well, do not say, coincide. A book has and, not killed a single person. <laughs> do
0: you say, like, it is inappropriate for an 11-year-old girl to read a book about, you know, sex and sexuality and simultaneously say, but it's perfectly appropriate for that girl to have to give birth. To to you know to the to the child of the person who molested her exactly Um, I I I'm like disconnect but disconnect between like what is and is not okay for young people yeah all of this this talk about what's appropriate is happening while our, our former president is you know having a, a legal battle about a, a crime that he committed in relationship to his affair with a porn star. Right. <laughs> so was right. that same group of people who are, are worried about what kids read. And there is right. a part of me, the most cynical part of me that's like, you know, they just don't want kids reading. <laughs> like they just don't. Yeah. And I mean, that's really reading
1: what, reading what it is. They just don't them. want kids to learn, right? Like they want them to just kind of walk into the world naively and um, and that, that has to be what it is, right? Because um, there's no difference. And I had to explain this to somebody the other day and they once I said it, they were like, oh, I guess I not didn't think about it like that. I'm like, so what's the difference between a 17-year-old at high school and a 17-year-old in college? What's, what's the difference? Oh, well, there aren't that many 17-year-olds in college. I said, I went to college at 17 because if your birthday falls October, November, December, you start college in August. Anybody who has a birthday that late, if they were able to start school at four and a half or five, they end up being 17 in college. So, again, what is the difference between a 17 year old high school student that you say this book is inappropriate for versus a 17 year old college student?
0: Right. And we live in a country where we, where we try 17 year olds as adults, where we sentence 17 year olds to old. life in prison. I wish I could talk to you about this book and about what this book means to young people all day, Um, although I know you just got home and your time is, (laughs) I hope that you get to enjoy being at home. What do you hope people take from this book in in our last minute together? What is is the point or the takeaway that, that you hope people read this and understand and, you know, use?
1: Yeah, I mean, realistically, I just want people to read the book, like actually read the book. Like, because you're going into it with these preconceived notions based off of four passages that have been put in the world out of context. But if you actually sat and read the book, it would open your mind up to so many different things because the book is relatable Because if you're a grandmother, the book has a grandmother in it that's very relatable. If you are a parent, the book talks about parents. If you have siblings, the book talks about me having siblings. Like the book has many universal factors that also connect, right? You don't have to be Black and queer to one, understand my experience, but two, also understand how you fit in the experiences of others in this world. And I think the final thing that the book does is it makes you interrogate yourself like a lot of times people get to walk around with the privilege of never having to even question themselves, I was born straight I am straight and that's all it is and this book I think makes you have to take a step back to say, well, maybe am I this or was I just put in this box and I just never opened it. Mm. I think that's what the book does.
0: The book is All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. It is hilarious. It is heartbreaking. It is everything you want from a great book. I cannot encourage you more strongly to to read this book, to get this book, to give this book to somebody that you love. Um, It is a great story and an important story and the second most banned story in the United States of America right now. All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. George, thank you so much for joining us here today on W O R T 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. Happy Tuesday, y'all.